For 20 years, Cultural DC has been making space for art. That includes physical spaces like galleries, theaters, and affordable housing for artists, but it also includes making space in the conversation for art. In this brand new episode of the Cultural DC podcast, we sit with two influential figures in the art world to discuss their latest projects and reflect on Insurrection, the first ever film by Andre Serrano, produced by Apolitical and presented in collaboration with Cultural DC. Insurrection premiered at Cultural DC's Source Theater on January 6, 2022, on the first anniversary of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Joining our podcast today are artists Andre Serrano and art curator Andy Grunberg to discuss Serrano's new book, The Game, All Things Trump, and Grunberg's latest work, How Photography Became Contemporary Art. Andre Serrano was born in 1950 in New York City and later attended the Brooklyn Museum Art School from 1967 to 1969, where he studied painting and sculpture. Andre Serrano is an internationally acclaimed American artist whose work has been shown in major institutions in the United States and abroad. His photography work is featured in numerous museums and public collections. Andy Grunberg was the photography critic of the New York Times from 1981 to 1991. He later served as the director of the Ansel Adams Center for Photography in San Francisco and as chair of the photography department and dean of the Corcoran College of Art and Design. Grunberg is an authority in the photography industry and writes eloquently about photography's boom years, chronicling the medium's increasing role within the most important art movements of our time. This program is presented in collaboration with Apolitical. Apolitical explores radical knowledge through the principle of cultural terror. Working with artists and agitators, the collective platforms voices that undermine the dominant narratives of our time. Based in London, Apolitical exists outside the commercial art world, functioning through interventions, commissions, and a collection of contemporary art. Learn more at a-political.org and at apolitical.org on social media. So welcome everybody. This is just gonna be a conversation, so it's very informal and hopefully relaxed. Absolutely. And uh, so the idea of um, this being about books as opposed to the film, which is Andre's most recent and um, signature piece that's um, being shown this week. Hopefully everybody will stick around for it later tonight. Um, but I thought that it would be interesting to look at um, the two bo books that we both have done recently. Um, the, the book, Trump the Game, Andres, and then my book's called How Photography Became Contemporary Art, and Andres is in it. So um, at first I thought this was kind of like a crazy idea to, to put these books next to each other, but then I realized they actually cover the same period of time because my memory of being, so I was in New York in the 70s and the 80s, which is largely when my book takes place, um, that that was the era of Donald Trump being this, uh, what would you call it, celebrity figure um, appearing on the cover of the Washington Post and you know, getting divorced or getting remarried or getting in trouble one way or another. Um, 
I don't, I don't know. I'd like to hear from you, but I, I just remember thinking that this guy was the biggest asshole in the city, and no one, in, no one in New York took him seriously that I remember. Mm. Yeah. Uh, are you finished? Yes. <laughs> I, I don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> you know. So you know. Uh, I, I, first of all, I want to say, I I've been reading your book. I haven't finished it, but I was very uh, impressed by, by uh, you know, how you laid out not only the, the history of photography from a certain uh, point of view or, or how, you know, and what was going on with artists uh, inside the, the, uh, the art world as far as photography is concerned. You also uh, start to give your first impressions of New York when you got there, I think in the 60s and 70s. Early 70s. And early 70s. And uh, I, I saw, I was struck by a, a passage where you think, you talk about how the town, uh, especially places like the Lower East Side, you know, they, they had a lot of characters and, you know, it was uh, the wild, wild west. In fact, people credit Giuliani with cleaning the city up. And so in the 70s, I was in my early 20s, and uh, I was living in the Lower East Side, and I was uh, doing drugs and selling drugs. So, uh, you know, you talk about the people that uh, Giuliani was cleaning. I was part of that crowd, <laughs> you know. <laughs> he uh, was after you. You know, yeah. And, uh, and, and so, uh, but I, I could, I, I very much liked what I was reading, and it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, you, as, as the, 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 the uh, photography critic for the New York Times, you know, you, you carried a lot of weight, and you saw a lot of photographs, and so uh, it, it's nice to get your perspective on things. Uh, in the 70s, I was not aware of Donald Trump, except maybe I heard of him. Uh, but I, I was too busy doing my own thing to be watching TV or, or reading newspapers. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, just committed to being, to li living a, a, a drug style lifestyle. You know, to, that, that was my thing. In fact, once, uh, even though I had gone to art school when I was 17, I dropped out of high school to go to, at 16, to go to art school at 17, and I, were, I attended the Brooklyn Museum Art School for two years and studied painting and sculpture. And uh, after two years, I realized I, I couldn't paint or sculpt, but then I, I lived with a girl named Millie Ehrlich, and I borrowed, started using uh, Millie's Konica camera and, always, and started taking pictures, but always saw myself as an artist who chose uh, to use a camera and, and declare photography my art uh, practice, but never saw myself, have never seen myself as a photographer. I've always seen myself as a conceptual artist with a camera. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a lot of what I'm, I'm trying to deal with in the book is that there were photographers who were like dyed in the wool photographers. That's, and they didn't want to be called artists because they thought that was an insult. Um, and, then there were, and then there were artists who got really interested in photography as, as a medium for what they wanted to do. Um, I mean, obvious examples are like Bill Wegman or Vito Acconci or, um, 
Cindy Bruce, Sherman. Cindy Sherman later on, yeah. Bruce, Bruce Nailman. I mean, just a lot, of, a lot of different people that had no particular attachment to photography as, you know, as being in a historical progression or, the, or the, the kind of photography that was sketched out at the, the tradition that was sketched out the, at the Museum of Modern Art. So you were really, and this is a point I try and make in the book because I don't think kids today understand that photography was n not always just like part of the, part of the art world. It was, not, it was kind of like separate um, and therefore unequal from the rest of the materials of art for a long time. But it was really your generation and, and people just a little bit younger that were able to say, I'm an artist and I want to use a camera to make my art. That was, that was a big difference. Yeah. Uh, my, my transition from the drug lifestyle to becoming an artist took place in around uh, you know, I, I was on drugs from around, uh, you know, when I was 21 till 28. And the last drug that I was really hooked on was methadone. Uh, because the government, you know, they, when you go to kick drugs back then, uh, when you kicked heroin or anything else, they said, yeah, kick that, and then we're going to give you a methadone. And methadone was even harder to kick. Methadone was the hardest drug I, I ever kicked. It took me more than two years to get off methadone. Ooh. And I was on a program, and then uh, I had to wean myself from 100 milligrams down to 20, and within the program, 10, and then afterwards, 5, and, and then still 5, 2, you know, 1 milligram. And once I was rid of the methadone, and now I'm 20, going on 29, still 28, going to 29, uh, I, I couldn't sleep at night. I, I couldn't, uh, for nine months, I, I could not sleep, and so I started going out. That's when I, I started clubbing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was one night when I went to a club uh, in, so in, in Soho, no, in uh, yeah, Tribeca, called Tier 3, that I, I happened to meet a woman named Julie Alt. And, uh, you know, that, that night we hooked up, and then nine months later we got married. But Julie Alt is, is, is a significant figure for me uh, uh, to have met at that time, because Julie Alt, along with a, a group of artists, uh, notably Tim Rollins, they were both from Maine, Julie and Tim, had just formed a, a group called Group Material. Mm -hmm. And Group Material, was a collective of about eight or nine artists, and uh, they, they might have had art practices in, as individuals, but their thing was, as a collective, they would use other artists' work and incorporate it into themes, as, uh, you know, social issues about race, about uh, AIDS, about all kinds of things. And they would uh, mount these exhibitions with using other, not only other people's work, but also using products. Like for the, uh, for the Whitney Museum during uh, one Biennale, they, that they, a show they had called Americana. They had television, a washing machine, all kinds of things. And I, I credit Julie with actually uh, being 
with, with, not with discovering Felix Gonzalez Torres, but when she came across his, her, his work, he, she immediately asked him to join group material. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was doing my thing. I would never went to any group material meeting. Uh, you know, uh, Julie didn't discuss group material with me. Uh, group material, material did use my work on, on a few occasions, but she was doing her thing and, and I was doing my thing. But because of Julie, I became aware of uh, a lot of the political activism that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. there, so, I hope people remember Julie Alton, Felix Gonzalez Torres, and, and the number of artists who were, group material was kind of a, a, um, a disruptive force in the, in the mechanism of the way the art world usually works. Um, it was collaborative for one thing, and it was also kind of appropriative and using other people's things. It sort of makes me think about your collection of Trump things being somewhat like that. But, um, but I mean, that was, that was this important sort of ferment that was going on. And, and where he lived in the Lower East Side then became this home for a lot of galleries and important bars. And people, people went there for art, and a lot of artists lived there. So it was really, I think, this kind of golden era, even though it was totally dangerous and, and um, dirty and everything else before Rudy cleaned it up. So I, I was just going to say, I so I was thinking about the first time I ever saw your work, and it was at Stuck's Gallery. And there were actually three artists that I remember Stuck's introduced me to. There were Mike and Doug Starn, who i become close to over the years. Um, Vic Muniz, who had just done those uh, memory drawings from Pictures of Life magazine and Andres, and your work was um, about bodily fluids. Is is uh, the work I really remember liking a whole a lot, um, and I was kind of interested in abstraction as this as this alternative to photography that dealt with the material world all the time. Mm -hmm. So I was so I was really interested in you know milk and blood. Um, Piss Christ, I guess, was part of that series, although with a with an object in it. So that so that was really the first time that I remember seeing your work. I don't know whether that was was that your more or less your debut in terms of of visibility in the in the New York art world, or had you been having shows before then? Uh, not really, but you know, uh, to put things in you know proper perspective, before I did that work that you referenced, the bodily fluids. I, I spent maybe five years of doing other work that no one has ever seen. So I, I was, uh, you know, uh, I'm a big Dylan fan, and when I, was at, when I was at that age, Dylan was like my Bible, you know. And, and, you know, any story or in the Bible, uh, it was like, you know, for me, any song of Dylan and, and things that he would say was were like proverbs, you know. Uh -huh. And one of the things that I was uh, impressed with, in I believe in one of his early songs, it, it's a hard rain that's going to fall, is that he said, 
I'll learn my song well before I start singing. Now Dylan is a very young man when he says that, but he meant it. And when he sang in his first album, second album, he had his thing together. Mm -hmm. He knew where he was going and, and he had a powerful voice already and repertoire. And so he, he did, as, as he said, he's gonna say, before I open my mouth, I'm gonna make sure I have something to say. And, and so uh, getting back to the Lower East Side, though, way, uh, you know, in the 80s, early uh, 81, 82, 83, Julie and I were living on 10th Street between 1st and 2nd, and that's where all the galleries, including Jay Gordy, PPOW, they, were all, they all went to that street. Yeah. And so, yeah, the gallery scene was there, and we happened to just be there, too, at the same time. Uh, but, but uh, you know, uh, so having said that, the other thing I wanted to say is that, yeah, when I was started to show my work at that time, there was the world of photography and the, and the galleries that showed painting and sculpture. And it's like, they didn't go together. Yeah. And because I had studied painting and sculpture at the Brooklyn Museum, and I thought of my work not as photograph, but as pieces. I always called them pieces. I made sure that I was going to be showing photographs like that because I wanted to show it, it with the big boys in the other galleries. And so that's you know pretty much uh, how it went for me. And Stuck's gallery, yeah, was, was the first gallery to show my work. And Again, to give you a little uh, background on how that series came about, uh, you know, I, uh, thanks to Julie, uh, I met people like Bill Olander, who, who William Olander was oh, the chief God. curator. He had yeah. just come to town. He was the chief curator, curator at the New Museum. And uh, Bill was always supportive, and he liked my work, and he put me in a couple of shows with uh, Clayton Gutman and Cindy Sherman, uh, you know, out of town. And I was grateful, but I always felt like, you know, wow, you know, these are well-known postmodernist artists, and I, I'm not known. <laughs> and, and besides, my work is very different than that. So Bill was, gonna, uh, was doing a show called Fake coming up at the New Museum. And it was about work by artists who were making things that referred to something else that it maybe had the appearance of something that, that they were not. So Bill uh, came for a studio visit. And even though I didn't think my work fit, after uh, Bill's uh, visit, I started to think about something. I started to think about doing photographs that were not like photographs, more like paintings, uh, and that were like, more like fake paintings, and that were going against the grain of photography, because photography for me uh, was a thing where, and my work was before that, there was a person, a, a subject, a backdrop, there's depth, there's perspective, you know, and so I thought, let me make a work, start a, a body of work that is not like any other photographs that I've seen or that I've ever made. And so the first image I did was uh, milk blood. Uh, there are two tanks, one filled with milk, the other with, with blood. 
shot very close up, and the only thing you see is, is a line between, uh, between the two uh, uh, liquids. And this picture referred to Mondrian. So from there, I did a monochrome of blood, of milk, of piss. So the, uh, the bodily fluids are all very abstract, uh, you know, combinations of, of milk and blood. Uh, Sperm, we should mention, that was my Well, favorite. that came later. Oh, okay. oh <laughs> uh, you know, uh, milk and blood, and then, uh, and then I added piss. And then I, I felt like I want to do something that refers to uh, back, you know, because right now, then, you know, I went from doing representational work to, to this body, which was completely abstract. So I wanted to go somewhere in the middle. I wanted to refer back to some representation in my work with the bodily fluids. And before that, I had been doing a lot of uh, images uh, of, of that work that no one ever saw, m images with uh, Christian themes, you know, and about Christ. Uh, I mean, I, I've been a Christian. I was born and raised a Catholic. I made my communion, uh, my, my uh, confirmation, and then I stopped going to church at the age of 13, like, like many people do. Uh, but I've always remained a Christian. I've always been, you know, a Christian, except I'm the kind of Christian that doesn't need to talk about my, my faith, you know? I don't need to talk about my religion. Uh, and in fact, I've been crucified as being anti-Christ or anti, uh, or being blasphemous or sacrilegious when I'm not, you know? And, and I, I, you know, I use, uh, I, a piss Christ for me uh, was using the body and blood of Christ as we are taught, you know, in religious instruction, the nuns talked about the body and blood of Christ. So as an artist, I felt I have, and as a Christian, I have every right to use the symbols of my faith. Uh, and so, but that's how it started. Mm -hmm. And then, so then uh, when I decided to put back some objects into these tanks and, and have something more re representational, Piss Christ was the first immersion. I, felt, I thought nothing of putting a crucifix into this, uh, you know, tank of urine. It's not a jar of urine. It's a big tank of urine uh, because that was part of my work before I went abstract. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then other things followed. And then finally the, the ejaculates were the final end, uh, you know, uh, uh, before I went into other things like uh, photographing homeless people and uh, doing portraits of them and calling it nomads. Uh, with the backdrop and everything, and, and then that led to, to the clan work, where also put them in a studio environment. Uh, and so that's how the trajectory of my work. Uh -huh. so, it, so for those that don't know, that the, the culture work, because in Washington it's all about Maplethorpe show being canceled in, in, at the Corcoran, that was, a, that was a big deal that happened here, but, but Piss Christ really ignited the whole um, culture war against art and specifically against photography um, when it was published in a catalog of the Southeast Center for Contemporary Art, um, which I guess gave you some money. Let's hope you got something out of that. Um, so, so that really put Andre's work on the front lines of the, the culture wars and <clears throat> I was very sympathetic to it, but I have to say, when, then when I saw the, 
the nomads and the clan work, I was less sympathetic. Um, so I have not always been um, totally supportive, but um, the the rest of the story is is that is that after that you did um, I think immediately after it or maybe there was something else in between but you did you did the morgue series, which I liked a lot and I was a I was a juror for the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships panel, and um, managed to. Uh, engender a lot of enthusiasm for Andres getting a grant for that work. And then, um, since this was after the shit had already hit the fan about Piss Christ, um, the new chairman, who was Jane Alexander, famous actress, um, decided that, uh, well, first she came back to us and said, do you really, you really think this is good? What do you, what, what? And I said, well, we all said, yeah, we really think we really think it's good. She said, "You're not going to change your mind. We're not going to change our mind." So then she she basically canceled that and worked. There was another grant that we wanted to give to Barbara to Genevieve and another to Mary Alpern, and those three grants got erased off the um, the list of who was going to get an artist fellowship. And we tried to comp make a big public stink about it. Um, which I guess worked to the extent that then the next thing we knew, they canceled all artist fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts for the rest of the time. There hasn't been any ever again. So that was, that was sort of like my experience with how chicken shit the federal government can act when it has to, um, sad. So, uh you said a mouth, mouthful that I have to address, <laughs> but I, I want to go back to Bill Orlando uh, because Bill, uh, for me, was not only very important as a supporter and as a friend, even though I didn't know him well. Like, like all good friends sometimes, they're friends you know, all you see or talk to all the time, one, to, one or two, but then there are friends who you never see, but you, you know, they, they, you, they, they're your friends because they support you. Uh, so, Bill, you know, as, you t as I mentioned, he's, he had always supported me. Now, in uh, February, probably February of 1989, Bill is in the hospital dying of AIDS. Yeah. And Julie and I went to visit him. And he had on his desk, uh, on his little night table, an article that had uh, just come out with Robert Maplethorpe on the cover. Now, Maplethorpe was dying of AIDS, too. And so uh, Bill had always felt like I was unrecognized, you know? And he, he said, in referencing Maplethorpe's you know, cover and the fact that he was dying, he said, Andres, maybe you could be the bad boy of the 90s. <laughs> now, uh, no one had ever put me and Maplethorpe together, and no one had ever called me a bad boy. Uh, a few months, a few, you know, within a short time, a few days later, Bill died, and then Robert Maplethorpe died a short time after that. And uh, 
Like four months later, uh, you know, uh, Donald Wildman, who is the head of the American Family Association, a very right-wing Christian organization, he had seen uh, Piss Christ in, in an exhibition and was aware that I had received funding for that from the NEA. And he starts writing to, his, uh, to 178,000 of his constituents, telling them to write to Congress, to, deplore, to, to you know, denounce this deplorable act of, of funding this dirty, controversial art. And so they start to get a lot of many, many, many letters from these people. And, and so in May of 1989, I'm being denounced in Congress by Jesse Helms, by Alphonse D'Amato, uh, who tears up a catalog with Piss Christ on it. And, uh, and they start going after me and the NEA. The NEA is getting a lot of heat. And the Corcoran, because they're in Washington, and their show is uh, their uh, show, uh, the perfect moment, the retrospective of Robert Mapplethorpe's work. It's coming up in three weeks. They cave and out of fear, they cancel Robert Mapplethorpe's show mm -hmm. a few days before it's we meant to it open. Well. And because of that, all hell breaks loose in the art world. I mean, no one cared about me. I was un unknown. But when that happened, it became uh, what was, became known as the cultural wars. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you know, it's no wonder that Jane uh, Alexander, who came after John Frommeyer, uh, would say no to any grant for me. Uh, and by the way, I had seen Jane uh, Alexander with, uh, you know, uh, James Earl Jones in the the Great White Hope, oh, yeah. the story of Jack's, Jack Johnson on Broadway, even though I was all the way in the back. And I, I didn't really go to Broadway shows, but I happened to see that one. But she could not do anything. And in fact, John Frommeyer, who was the head of the NEA when I was being denounced in Congress, you know, and, and then the, the Karen Finley and, and the, uh, the NEA four, they got into it too. I remember going to one that, you know, press thing with a, a bunch of people, a bunch of journalists, John Frommeyer, somebody else, and someone's, and he started to say nice things about Piss Christ. And, and so a journalist said to him, did you ever say that in public? And he said, no. So they were cowards, you know? And I feel like, uh, you know, the NEA should have defended me not by, they didn't have to defend me, just defend the process. They said, listen, we didn't give him the money. We gave it to, you know, the, we, there's the, these, uh, these uh, judges, these art, uh, you know, uh, judges and panelists, they're the ones who give the money. We don't get involved in this. It was their decision. Blame it on them, blame it on, on the artist. But instead, they became, uh, they were very defensive, apologetic, once uh, the politicians got that, they, they got blood, you know, so they attacked and pounced on the NEA, and they, they never let up. Yeah, that's true. So how did you get from that moment to being obsessed with all things Donald Trump? 
Okay, so I uh, have spent many years doing many, many, many bodies of work. I did the morgue that you said. Uh, I, I did, uh, you know, later I, I did something called uh, A History of Sex. It was a show, you oh, know, yeah, to show you yeah. the difference between America and other places, I did a show called The History of Sex at the Groningen Museum uh, in 1997. And it was going to be a retrospective of my work called The History of Andre Serrano. So a few months before the show was to open, the curator, uh, Mark Wilson, who was an American, who is now the curator at, at the Groningen Museum in Holland, he said to me, listen, uh, before your show, the museum was thinking, why don't you come to Holland to make some work here that we could put in the show? And I said to him, listen, uh, you know, uh, Mark, I I'm doing a new show for Paula Cooper Gallery. I was with Paula at the time. And I said, uh, you know, uh, it's called The History of Sex, so I don't have time to go to Holland to make work about the Dutch. And he said, if you're doing sex pictures, why don't you come to Amsterdam? <laughs> and I said, you're right. We so I, I went to Amsterdam for five months. Uh, museum gave me $40,000 to do these sex pictures. And uh, they didn't care what I did, you know, as long as I did something. I remember uh, my assistant and I, uh, we had separate apartments. My assistant was Michael Coulter, a dear friend, uh, a black man from the Bronx who I had known many years. He was like a brother. And so uh, Michael didn't know anything about photography. You know, he just carried the equipment, helped me carry. And more important, he was my, uh, my moral support. I needed to see, I needed to talk to a friend in English that I could, even though the Dutch speak English, I needed to have somebody of my own there yeah. and, and to, to be my assistant. So uh, we were there, I was there for five months doing work. And uh, you know, it was funny because uh, the only thing Mark Wilson ever gave, put pressure on me was to do work. Do so. One time he said to me, listen, we have, uh, you haven't shot a picture in two, two weeks. And, oh, and by the way, when I got there, the first thing they gave me is a guy who took me around to all the sex clubs, all the sex dungeons, uh, bars, you know, the straight, gay, didn't matter, you know, just for me to see the sex scene in Amsterdam. And it was very, very, you know, vibrant, I gotta say that. <laughs> so I saw a lot, you know, went to a lot of fetish parties for work, you know, and, and to be an observer, you know, and, and the interesting thing about the fetish parties in Amsterdam is that uh, there was a dress code, rubber, leather, or nothing, and, and so, <laughs> You go there, and, and a couple of times, Michael and I, we went there with my black leather jacket, black jeans, and then we come. We had to go to the fetish store and get rubber or leather clothing, uh, top to bottom, unless we wanted to go naked, and we didn't want to go naked, you know? <laughs> so the point is, with such a strict dress code, it means that if you go there looking for a show, you are the show. There's no spectators there. You're all part of the same thing. And, and so ha having done that, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the things that uh, uh, I realized in going to the clubs that there were these uh, different rooms with different people doing different things. And they had the dark rooms too. The dark rooms were people 
You know, it's different levels of darkness. Sometimes the dark rooms are so dark, you have to spend a couple of minutes in there, first of all, to see what, that there were people in there that were just very quiet, and to see what they were doing, and it took, it was not easy. Uh, some of the other dark rooms, they just had a red light, and it was easier to see what was being done, what was going on. But, uh, but it was a show in different rooms, and Michael and I uh, would go to different rooms and not see each other for hours until it was time to go home. And, and Michael befriended a guy who ran one of the parties named Leo. And one time, you know, Michael said to me, there, a couple days after a party we went to, he called me up and he said, you know, Leo said something very interesting. He said, uh, I always get an erection whenever I see a picture of a woman pissing into a man's mouth. And I said to Michael, why not? We, we do the hits, let's do that. And so when, one day when my, Mark Wilson said to me, shoot something, I said, well, you know, Mark, I was, I was thinking of shooting a picture of a woman pissing into a man's mouth. And he said, great, book the van and do it. So whatever I came up with, he said, go ahead, do it. And after the show, uh, oh, and by the way, and what happened was uh, I finished the work, and then there was a film festival, uh, the Rotterdam Film Festival, that was happening three weeks before my show was going to open at the Groningen Museum. And so the, the museum, on its own, they decided to use the piss picture as the poster, and they made a big poster just like the one out there now. And they put it up during the, uh, the Rotterdam Film Festival, and it was stolen a couple of times. But because the poster started getting notoriety, uh, a prosecutor went to court to try to get uh, an injunction. He was representing several schools, uh, and he, he tried to get an injunction against uh, the poster being shown in the streets to advertise the show. And even though the, 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 uh, the judge said it could be shown, the prosecutors in Gro uh, Groningham, uh, Rotterdam, and Amsterdam all said they would prosecute anyone who put up the poster. So the museum never put up the poster, but a, a day before, two days before the show was about to open, they put up another poster, and it said Groningen Museum. It was just white with black letters. It said Groningen Museum. You decide, and because of the fact that uh, you know that poster had gotten so so much attention in all the media in in Holland, that everyone knew exactly what they were talking about, and ten thousand people went to the opening, and that poster was never sold, but it sold out, and so afterwards, you know, we did a video, an interview where I'm talking, and, and by the way, uh, not only did did uh, for the, for that uh, event the museum decided to invite all, all my models, you know, who had participated in all the sex pictures to the opening, and, and they happily came, and you see them taking pictures, the press is taking pictures of them next to their picture. And so I remember at the end of it, uh, Michael was interviewing us for a video, and I said to, to Mark Wilson, I said, Mark, you know, I really am glad that uh, you never told me you went too far. And he said to me, well, that's because you didn't. 
I mean, that kind of support, I've never found anywhere else, yeah. not in America. And the only time that I found that support is now with Apolitical, the arts-based organization that allowed me to do this work. They supported me with the game, All Things Trump, and finding a space for me in New York. And, and when I told them, listen, uh, I thought I was done but with Trump, but you know, nine months later, because of the fact that the insurrection happened, I, I said to Becky Sherwin, the director of A Political, I said, you know, now uh, I, I want to do a film called Insurrection about the insurrection. And she said, great. And she gave me my team. Sebastian Patcher, who not only edited the film, but he also uh, created the, uh, the, the, the sound, the soundtrack, the ambience, everything. And uh, George Chetwood, who also works for Apolitical, who, re who researched and, and, and found me all the videos that I, I saw that, and there were over a hundred videos that I used for this film. So a director usually has a crew of, uh, you know, dozens, if not more. I had Sebastian and George, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And with the support of Apolitical as the producer, you know, this is how this film came about. Maybe it was better to have a smaller group than a whole Hollywood production oh, I, team? I, I, I thought you were going to say uh, maybe it was better I didn't ask you the question because it was such a long answer. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. So, so in his review of the film in the post, Philip Kennicott said that you were a provocateur. Is that something you agree with? Do you, do you sense yourself? Because you're sort of talking about these encounters with the powers that be pushing back or not pushing back, but um, do, you, do you have that in mind? Does that play into how you think of yourself as a, as a provocateur? Uh, you know, I, I don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and think, yeah, well, that guy's a provocateur, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I always say that uh, the most controversial thing I ever did was to be born, because I was born this way, you know? And so I don't try to be uh, provocative. I don't try to be contra uh, controversial. I just try to be myself. But I'd rather be a provocateur than a boring artist. So when you started collecting the Trump material that's in the book Trump the Game, were you thinking that that, that was going to am amount to something that would be connected to your art, or were you just like interested in the phenomenon of Donald Trump and wanted yeah. to have a, a bunch of it? How, Andy, how, did, how Andy, did that happen? Andy, that's a funny question, because <laughs> i tell you why. I'm a collector, okay? I'm an artist and I'm a collector, but what I collect is uh, a certain period, 1700 or earlier. Uh, in my home, you know, I have Renaissance furniture. I've got uh, midi uh, some medieval sculptures dating back to the 13th century. Uh, and, and all religious because, you know, uh, art was the most important thing. Uh, religion or Christianity was the most important thing in the art world before the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm drawn to, to that as my period. Uh, I feel comfortable. I like living 
in a place that is like a museum. A lot of my pieces are actually museum pieces that actually either came from museums or could have been in museums that I got from Christie's or Sotheby's. Uh, and so uh, I'm a collector and I've collected other things, but I did not spend five, six, seven hours a day for nine months, you know, on eBay and other auction houses making a collection for myself. I was not making a collection. I was making a, a portrait of Donald Trump, a huge installation with everything in the name Trump on it, even Trump signed magazines and photographs. And I gotta tell you, Donald Trump, true to his ego, uh, can uh, you know, give you, sign magazines that are highly critical of him and he puts his name on them like, I don't give a fuck, I'm bigger than that, at least they're talking about me. Because that, Donald Trump has always been a media whore. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> you said from the beginning of his career, he knew how to use the press, and the press were happy to get in bed with Donald Trump because they sold newspapers. And one of the reasons why Hillary Clinton won was because she got more press, <laughs> you know? Anytime Donald Trump opened his mouth, he would best her and get a lot more press, even though she might have said the right things uh, to the people, uh, you know, to the media. The, what he was saying was more interesting. And so, uh, so when I, I uh, you know, embarked on this Donald Trump, uh, you know, odyssey, not uh, for myself, not to be a collector, you know, I, all of that stuff, there, the game, which is still intact, uh, will someday ho hopefully find a home for a collector who appreciates it. And, you know, aside from all the objects and merchandise uh, that I bought that all came from Trump casinos and, and, and Trump hotels and everything, I even, I even have what I feel is uh, the most significant object in that uh, installation and that is the eagle sign from the Trump uh, Taj Mahal Eagle Lounge. It's an 11 foot high ceiling, uh, uh, high, uh, sign that spells the word ego and it rotates. And the thing about that sign is anything you want to know about Donald Trump is in, is in that sign. Because for Donald Trump, the world revolves around him. And when he was president, it did. <laughs> that said, most of the most of the material, I think, most of it, that's in the book are photographs of Donald Trump. You took one of them, but there's also lots of magazine covers and and campaign materials. It's all pictures of him which he signs exactly the same way every time, but it's- Not really, <laughs> his, sign, his signature changes, but you know it's Trump's signature. It's, okay. And you know- I, I'll have to study that more carefully. Yeah, and I have studied it, and you know, he's a master at signing his name. Uh, uh, one thing he, I have is a, a vote for Trump card, and it's a scribble right over his face, you know? Another time he does that with, with the, uh, Art of the, uh, Art of the, uh, the Art of the Deal book, you know? He signs it right over his face, and he signs it very artistically. This guy is an artist when it comes to signing his name. <laughs> and, 
anyway, the point I was, was going to make was that, was that he was the master of representation. And when we were both starting out in the art world, the whole idea of representation, critically, theoretically, um, and as a, a subject for art, I mean, that was sort of what lay behind all the art that we think of as postmodernist, is that people were dealing with the way in which photographs appeared in the public sphere. And I thought, that's kind of culturally interesting that at the same moment that artists were interested in the way in which photographs don't depict the truth, but depict a certain kind of stereotype or, or iconography that has a intention behind it, that Trump was like before our eyes mastering that whole process and, and sort of somehow evading any kind of critical opportunity. I mean, I think your book is the first time we can actually like critically look at the iconography of Donald Trump that evolved over all that, that time. And I don't, I don't know if his signature changed, I'll take your word for it, but do you, think, do you think the way Donald Trump presents himself to the camera has changed over the years? Absolutely not. His signature, by the way, is like my signature. It, it's different, but it's the same. Yeah. You know, over the years, I signed differently, uh, but it's still the same. I can go back and forth in the, my style of signing things. Uh, Trump is the same way. Uh, but, you know, the thing about Donald Trump, and I think this is what something that supporters, and by supporters, I mean people who know Donald Trump from the old days, people who went to his casinos and, you know, lived through the time when Donald Trump was a media darling and was a, a young guy with a charming look, you know? I, I mean, he, he was very charming, you know? And, and, and playful sometimes with the media if, if they weren't hostile to, to him. And a lot of them were not. Yeah. So he was himself. Donald Trump is the same guy, except he's older, not as pretty as before, and he's angry, angrier than before. He was angry before, but he, he could control it. Now he can't really control it. And, and so I, I say that Donald Trump, and this is what the people, the supporters, uh, the people who knew him before, people who know him now, this is what they love about Donald Trump. Donald Trump came on the scene, the political scene, and said, listen, you don't have to be politically correct. I'm not a politician, and I'm not gonna talk like a politician. I'm gonna talk like Donald Trump, and because I can. You can't, maybe, but I can. And that's what his supporters love about Donald Trump, that he talks like they wanna, they, like the guy that he wants to hear, uh, they wanna hear. Uh, you know, I, I, I referenced uh, before Jack Johnson, uh, the play, uh, The Great White Hope. Donald Trump is the Great White Hope. After Obama, uh, a lot of those people did not uh, want, they, they didn't want a, a, a black, uh, uh, after having a black president, they didn't, want, they didn't want a white woman in the White House. They wanted a white man, and they wanted that white man you know, because he appealed to their base, baser instincts. And so uh, I would say that Donald Trump has lived up to his dream. You know, who, you know, personally, 
I don't know if Donald Trump believes anything. He just knows how to get what he wants. And one of the things about the game, which is based on a game, a Monopoly-type game that Donald Trump made in the uh, 80s, and on the cover you see Donald Trump's picture, and then you have a Donald Trump quote, and it says, it's not whether you win or lose, it's whether you win. And that, it means Donald Trump is a master at going for the throat. I mean, and that's why he bested Hillary. That's why he bests a lot of people, because he, he knows no one is better as, at, at the insult than Donald Trump. And the soundbite. Mm -hmm. I left you speechless. <laughs> I don't know, maybe there's a question. I was interested in the, the moment that relates to both your career and your work about the, the transition of photography to, uh, to become conceptual art. And I was wondering, like, maybe you can speak specifically about your career and you can talk in general, but one was like, were you looking for influence, when you were looking for influences, was it typically other, like, was it, was it conceptual artists like paintings and sculptors or were there photographers too that you look back on that influenced your work and maybe generally about how the transition happened with these people? And, and also, was there resistance among teacher, professors and critics and, uh, uh, and peers about having this photography count as the art or once it was clear, that, or did it seem obvious, yes, this is, this is artistic manner, so it was accepted. Uh, and either in general, or related to your career, could you address those questions? Yeah. Andy, you. if you, you don't mind, I'm gonna answer my part first. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so uh, I would say uh, there were two influences in my life as a young artist, as a young man. One is Bob Dylan, who I discovered probably at the age of 14, when I uh, sent away for these, uh, this this record deal, back then they had Columbia Records offered you 10 albums for a penny. And, and then after that, you, got, you, got, you had to pay every month for a, you know, an album. And if you didn't say you didn't want it, you'd get paid, you'd get billed anyway. And they'd send it to you. So uh, I, when I discovered Dylan, I realized that, yeah, that this is a guy that I could you know, embrace as, as being someone somewhat of a teacher for me. The other mentor and, or teacher for me was when I discovered Marcel Duchamp at the age of 16, 17, because Marcel Duchamp taught me and everyone else that anything, including a photograph, could be a work of art. So, so that is where I've always drawn my inspiration from. And some fraction of Duchamp's work consists of photographs, some of which Man Ray made at his bequest. Um, so yeah, I think Duchamp was the great discovery of um, the 70s and the, the, whatever we call conceptual art sort of depends on the fact that he was, um, had a second, a second coming, if it were, as it were. Anyway, I, to talk about the, the question a little bit, the, the, um, which is really central to what the book is about, um, and the the argument of my book is that is that at the beginning of when I start, which is the late '60s, early '70s, 
photography and art are these two just separate things. I mean, there start to be photography galleries, but as Andre said, they're like over here, and art galleries are over here, and they're not really having much to do with each other. But, but through a, a lot of complex reasons and a lot of events, though the, the world of photography comes to be central to the world of contemporary art, and artists who um, weren't really interested in photography start getting into it. And, and Moybridge is the great example of an artist who was incredibly important to Saul LeWitt, to, to Mel Bachner, to a, lot of the, to a lot of the conceptual artists, Carl Andre. I mean, they, they, they loved his sequential work. They didn't care about his landscapes, but they, they loved this idea of, of the human and animal locomotion pictures as being this sequence and this series, and, it's, and it looks like it's real, but it's actually like put together from these separate pictures in a series. And now that, that, that's sort of, a lot of them didn't do that much with photography, but they were just fascinated with Moybridge's use of um, sequential photography. And, and um, you know, some of them did. LeWitt did a lot of pieces, of sort of catalogs of, of photographic pieces. Um, and then, my favorite story, which I, I think I tell in the book, is that, um, you know, the Ileana Sanabin was a really influential dealer in Soho in the in the starting in the early 70s, and she was showing Bern and Hilla Becher, who were German artists who photographed water towers ad infinitum, and you know, other things, Tudor buildings ad infinitum. They would they would go off on these make really extended archival series of pictures of, of different industrial forms. And she was having to sell it. She loved the work. It was conceptual. Um, but she was, she was having to sell it. So she, she was having a little trouble. So they said, well, you have to know more about photography. So she actually was educated in the history of photography, and in particularly German Neue Sacklichkeit photography, um, by the the Bechers as, as sort of a way of understanding where they were coming from. And as a result, she got more and more into um, even collecting the history of photography. And she, be, she was showing more and more artists who were making photographs. Boyd Webb, David Haxton, Jan Groover. I mean, the, the list goes, um, Sujimoto. Um, the list goes on and on. So. So it's kind of like at the beginning, I think artists didn't feel any obligation to know anything about photography. They just knew how to make cameras. I mean, we all, there were no cell phones. So if you wanted to make photographs, you just bought a camera. And cameras weren't that expensive. They were like, I had a Minolta. You had a Konica. You could get a Nikon if you were had an extra $100. Um, and, and that was sort of like a, a fun thing to do. So I think artists just kind of gravitated to that the same way they also gravitated to video at the same time when that started appearing as a, a thing that you could do in the, later in the 60s. So I think, long answer to your question, <laughs> but I think that, that eventually that there, was, there wasn't such a separation between artists who used photography knowing 
maybe nothing about photography at the beginning, but I think everybody kind of got onto the, onto the, onto the program. And as, as criticism, like if you look at art forum, you see it's covering photography more and more, especially when John Copeland's was the editor of it in the 80s. And um, theoretically, as, as October Magazine starts really using photography as kind of the, the medium of the moment to explain French um, post-structuralist theory to people, um, that, that suddenly photography went from being this outlier, which people didn't know anything about, to everybody getting on the wagon. But I still remember going to see, a, I was doing a show in 1989 called Photography and Art, and I was going to see these collectors who had collected um, story art, which was a, a, a kind of art that used photography a lot. And so I said, could I see these guys? And they'd say, well, yeah, but we don't collect photography. And then they'd open up their closet and like there would be all these photographs. And it's, it's the same way that you, like, you weren't making photography, you just happened to be making photographs that were pieces, right? Mm. So, so collectors would own photographs and not even know that they had collected photography. Well, I just want to say, I used the Konica early on, uh, Millie's Konica in 1968, 69, yeah. and then went 10 years without taking pictures. And when I start taking pictures again now, I have a Nikomat. And then uh, a 35 mil millimeter, up until the, I started to the, the, uh, the, the uh, nomads and then the clan. Now uh, I've gone to, uh, to a Mamiya RB67. Uh -huh. And in fact, uh, more than 30 years later, I still use it. You know, I still, uh, I, I still use, shoot film, you know, and I, I still use the same lights I've been using for, for years. Uh, you know, I like to stick to what I know mm. and I like what I get. I mean, my thing is, I've been taking more or less the same picture almost all my life, or the same way. Not the same picture, but I've been shooting the same way. Uh, I got, you know, a main light and, and two backlights, and then there's a subject in front of me. And with that, my work has changed so dram dramatically. The equipment is the same, but the pictures are not, and the mm. concepts are not. Just about why you think someone as ubiquitous as Donald Trump was largely ignored for the past 40 years by contemporary art. As like, you're saying this is the first book you've seen where you know, you've, you're looking at a catalog of like an icon, essentially. Uh -huh. um, but you know, I feel like even until when he became president, no one saw it coming when it should have been obvious. He's like 40 years of propaganda behind him. Um, I was just wondering why you think maybe that might have been ignored. Why the art world ignored Donald Trump yeah, for, like for the last four years? Ignored all this, this icon. Well, I, I don't think they ignored it, uh, Donald Trump. It was, when they did, uh, they didn't cover him much, but when they did, uh, they, point, they made it very critical. They made fun of him. And that's, uh, you know, I'm not interested in doing that. I always say my work is open to interpretation. So my desire was not to uh, bring Donald Trump down. 
I just wanted to paint the picture of Donald Trump as I feel he sees himself. And the Donald Trump that I, that you can see objectively without, you know, without uh, any judgment. And so that's the picture that I portray, try to portray, not only with the game, All Things Trump, but with the film. You know, the film, I I'm not telling you these people are bad. Yeah, in fact, I'm trying to humanize them. Aside from the mob scenes, which there is a lot of it, uh, I'm showing you, yeah, I try to get glimpses of people, uh, their faces, them saying something. And, uh, you know, despite the noise sometimes, and there's a lot of noise in the film, <laughs> you could hear snatches of somebody saying something. <laughs> like, one of the funny things, one of the funny, funniest things for me is toward the end of the film when this guy, he's, he's struggling with the police, and he says, and very loud, because, uh, you know, someone's got the camera on him, he says, listen, we're trying to make a point, but I don't want to fight these guys. You don't want to fight these guys. What the <laughs> hell have you been doing for, for several hours now, you know, if not fighting these guys? So I, I just find those moments very funny. Uh, but I believe, first of all, that Donald Trump will love this film because Donald Trump made sure that the insurrection went down exactly the way he wanted it to. Uh, he didn't get what he wanted, but he made a point and he brought the house down and he destroyed the you know, the, 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 the proceedings. And most of all, his army listened to him and they showed up and they went to battle. He said, go to war, and they did. So, but we are now, one year later, still debating about the role of Donald Trump and whether or not this insurrection, uh, this little skirmish, was really as bad as all that. You know, the Republicans, the politicians, and a lot of the Republican voters want, are saying, come on, let's move on. So it happened, but forget about it. It's not a big deal. Well, the big deal for me is that if they were black people, they would have killed on the, been killed on the spot. The, the military, the police would have come out with machine guns. I mean, black people get killed for a lot less than breaking into the, the White House, the Capitol, it, it, a lot less than spending hours fighting the police. Black people get killed for walking down the street uh, at night, you know, uh, for, for not being able to pull out their driver's license in time to prevent the cop from shooting them. And so that for me, you know, I'm not gonna judge these people. They are who they are. And if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have a film. So I, I see them as, uh, actors in my film, but I say that the system, uh, uh, the system that gives uh, preferential treatment to, to certain groups of people and allows certain people to get away with murder and then goes and kills others for no reason at all, that's the real injustice. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun. You're good. <laughs> this podcast was made in partnership with candor labs want to learn how to make your own podcast hit us up reach out to us at candorlabs.com